What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I am talking with the author and tech journalist, Charles Arthur. All right, so his book is Social Warming, and it is awesome. So quick little backstory. All right. So I, I had never, <laughs> I'd never heard of Charles's work and I was just on Twitter one day and I saw, um, his book was coming out. It's a, it's a newer book. It's called social warming, checked it out. And it's, you know, it's about some of the issues around social media and all that. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's another, it's another one of those, but I'll, I'll check it out. Right. I, I read a ton of books on the same topic, you know, and they get really repetitive. Like I would be lying to you if I was like, Hey, I read like, you know, dozens of books on the same topic and they're all different. A lot of authors write the same thing about the same topics. And by the way, any writers out there listening to this, you'll often hear this type of thing. Like, Oh, if you're pitching to a publisher or, you know, whatever, you, you need something unique. You need something fresh. You need something new. That's a bunch of baloney. There are so many books written about the same thing. And I'm at 290 books for the year. So trust me on this, but anyways, anyways. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read this guy, Charles's book, see what I think, you know, whatever. And I got hooked on it. Okay. There are so many books about social media and stuff going on. And I am not joking when I tell you that Charles's book, Social Warming is different. As soon as I got into it, I started tweeting its praises and I reached out to Charles. I'm like, yo, I need you to come on the podcast. I was like, I've read so many books about this and not only does he offer a, a different perspective, but you'll hear us talk about this in this conversation. There are different topics uh, around, you know, issues with like Facebook or Twitter or just international issues where I've heard about them a million times and they don't make sense, right? And in Charles's book, he was able to break it down and explain it in a way where it just, it finally clicked. I'm like, oh, okay. So, so yeah, just, just even the specific part that I'm talking about made the book worthwhile, but there, there's so much more. And I love Charles's analogy of social warming and he'll explain why he calls it social warming. But anyways, anyways, like I, I promise you, if you grab this book, no matter how many books you've read about, you know, social media and the algorithms and how they make us polarized and, you know, they spread mis misinformation, I guarantee you this one is different. And I was, I was blown away. So I'm super glad that I had a chance to talk with Charles, have him on the podcast. So head down to the description, make sure you are following Charles over on Twitter, grab a copy of his book. And I've also linked his blog. Uh, he mainly writes about tech. He'll kind of discuss it towards the end of the episode, but yeah, I've been checking it out. I dig it. And you know, I'm only semi into tech, but I love it. So if you have a, if you, if you even have a, like a smartphone or anything, trust me, you'll, you'll be interested. All right. But anyways, before we get started down in the description below, not only will you find all of Charles's stuff, but you'll also find my social media links and make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Like just today before uploading this, uh, I had two author interviews with who you don't know, but if you were following me on social media, you would know who they are. So I, I, I let you know in advance who's coming on, what books I'm reading. And I just love chatting with all of you. All right. Like today, today, somebody tweeted at me, a, a loyal listener, and she asked for some book recommendations. Not only did I, you know, feel honored 
and was able to give her some, but then I retweeted her since, you know, I'm talking to a lot of authors and readers and stuff and they helped her out too. So that's another reason to follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. And yeah, if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast, make sure you're subscribed, all that stuff. So you don't miss any new episodes. Okay. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Charles Arthur about his brand new book, social warming. Hello, Charles. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm very good, Chris. It's uh, it's really good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we were able to set this up. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of the book. I heard of it. I looked at it. I'm like, okay, I need this. So, Social Warming is your latest book. Can you kind of uh, discuss what inspired you to write this book, or or even if you want to, can you kind of define what you mean by social warming? Let me start with the, the, the definition first. So yeah. social warming is, uh, is a phrase that I came up with. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm reflecting the, the phrase that people use all the time of global warming, which is mm-hmm. that um, very subtle, very gradual, but completely irresistible way in which the planet is getting hotter because of the things that we are doing. Uh-huh. And, you know, all the scientific evidence is there. We can see it all around us. It's in very subtle things like, you know, the, uh, the winters are just that bit warmer. There's that bit less snow. Uh, uh-huh. you, know, you get extreme uh, conditions as well. So, you know, you, go, you get once in a century hurricanes, which hit, you know, sort of once every 20 years in Louisiana, for example. All those sorts of behaviors mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that the climate gets into. And so I was thinking about social effects, about the effects of social networks. And the thing that for me um, got me really interested in it, which I know has also been a, a sort of thing that, that came to your notice, was the, the 2016 election of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. which, which stemmed to some extent from a very small number of votes in three critical states. So there was Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And about uh, a few of the 100,000 votes there swung each of those states from the potential to be Hillary Clinton's because they've been the bombs we've all to being Donald Trump's. And those were a very small fraction of the total number of votes cast, even in just those states. And if you looked at it compared to the whole number of uh, votes cast in the whole of the United States in the 2016 election, tiny fraction. And that got me thinking about well, you know, very small changes that make very big differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, and also that um, the Trump campaign had focused a lot of its efforts on Facebook advertising during that campaign. That it had yeah. focused on what to many people seemed like a new medium in terms of trying to persuade people either to go out and vote or not to go out and vote uh, in, the, in the case of some yeah. graphics. It was just a small difference, but it you know, may have been sufficient to make enough of a difference. It might not have been all of the votes were due to Facebook, but it could have been some. And, and that's the sort of warming thing that I'm talking about. It's these very mm-hmm. small effects, these very small analog effects that have an effect which tips something over from being in one state to being in another state. So, you know, it's rather like, you know, you, you take, take water at, you know, zero degrees centigrade, it might still be ice. And then you take it to 0.1 centigrade. And then yeah. It's a phase change. It's a, it's a difference in how things behave. So that was what really what got me thinking about 
uh, the whole social effects of social networks because I've, you know, I've been a technology journalist for a long time. You know, it was all mm-hmm. these decades, I'm afraid. You know, I've gone from the, <laughs> where, you know, my first stories I was writing on literal physical typewriters with literal physical <laughs> carbon paper. Um, you know, carbon copy was a real thing for me. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've seen the technologies come along and social networks have been one of these things which have really made a very big difference, I think, to how people think about what they know, what they don't know, and how they find out about things. I mean, Google was one of the things that really changed how people thought about how do I find stuff out? How do I know stuff? And social networks have had a, a similar dramatic effect. I'm not sure it's been as good as uh, Google was in the first days. Yeah, yeah, no, I, exactly. And and yeah, I really like that that analogy that you made. And that's one of the reasons I, I was drawn into the book. But yeah, in a, in a similar way, like I w- I've always been kind of like this kind of like, oh yeah, you know, who cares about politics? Who cares about anything? There's nothing I could do. But in 2016, I took a step back and I'm like, something crazy is going on. And that's when I really started reading books. I wanted to educate myself. And so that's, that's why I read so many freaking books. But um, one thing that I, I thought was interesting, and I would love to, you know, just, just get into your, your head a little bit, because there's so many books on social media. Right? There's so many like, no, oh, hey, social media is destroying our lives. And there's like books on how it's affecting our kids. There's, there's so many, but uh, as I mentioned, like when I reviewed the book and I sang your book's praises on, on Twitter, it seems like, you know, you, you touched on things that I haven't seen. So when you were working on this, when you were writing this, like, did you feel like there was a gap that needed to be filled that you were like, Hey, how come nobody's talking about these aspects of how social media is kind of affecting the world? I guess that I sort of started with the, with the feeling that this was something that was happening, that social media mm-hmm. was a thing. And then I went out to see, you know, in a sort of scientific way, because I've got a sort of scientific training to some extent, um, to sort of see if I could you know, put together the, the bits that would make the hypothesis work. Um, yeah. and so, um, a lot of the, a lot of what I've, what I've described in the book comes out of sort of looking around at, well, what's the, what's the science in this? And there's, you know, there are quite a lot of scientific studies quoted, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, you know, hope I try to make them as accessible as I can, that I, that I try to yeah. sort of relate what they do to, to the way that people behave. Um, but, but I mean, it's a, it's a four-step thing. There's, there's this process by which we're all tribal. You know, if, if you look at humans, there was mm-hmm. sort of, a, there's a theory that about 2 million years ago or so, there were really very few humans that survival was pretty much at a premium. Um, so you had to stick together and that made us tribal. You had to be in the tribe. You, you know, the tribe supported you, you supported the tribe. If you didn't do things that were good for the tribe, you could be chucked out of the tribe and that would basically yeah. mean you were dead. And, yeah. and that is what gives us the feeling of outrage. If you offend against the, the tribe's sensibilities, the things that keep the tribe going, then, uh, people will react by being outraged at you and you could be chucked out of the, of the tribe. So you have, in effect, you create the idea of the in-group and the out-group. You, you know, we are mm-hmm. tribal. These people are in our tribe. These people are not in our tribe. And outrage is one of the ways that you sort between them. Uh, nowadays, of course, you know, the tribalism doesn't matter. We're not so worried about our survival in the same way, yeah. but we still have the function of outrage. So the next thing that happens is that social networks get involved. You have algorithms and the algorithms all look at what we do. They have no understanding of the concepts of tribalism or outrage. 
but they just are sorting and selecting for mm -hmm. what they think is engagement. What to the algorithm is you spending more time on the social network. That to them is a good thing. Uh, whether or not it's people all shouting each other and calling each other names or spreading misinformation, yeah. if there's time spent on it, it's good to them. So the algorithm reinforces the outrage, the, the sort in there, the in-group outgroup stuff. And finally, yeah. the fourth part of this four-step process is moderation or the lack of it. The social networks yeah. are not interested in strong moderation. That's not good for them because if you throw people off your networks uh, rapidly for, for spreading misinformation or, or sort of, you know, spreading outrage for, for no reason, uh, uh, all those sorts of things, then you reduce the, the time that they're going to spend on it. Obviously, you're getting fewer people on it. And this lack of moderation is the thing that allows this whole cycle of tribalism, outrage, algorithm reinforcement to, to keep on happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's something that I, I, I really, you know, got interested in it as well. In 2019, I had, I had the algorithms working against me to get, you know, outrage mobs coming after me. And I, you know, that's when I started learning about, you know, tribalism and looking at evolutionary psychology. And I wanted to understand group psych, uh, group psychology and just see what was going on. Right. And, and yeah, you, you discuss how like these algorithms are kind of amoral and they just, they just kind of do their things. But one thing I'm curious about whenever I read one of these books, right? Because there's, you know, there's that thing, uh, you know, the curse of knowledge, right? And this is something I've been interested in. I grew up in the nineties. I was there when social media started They help, helped me because I was socially anxious. I'm like, cool. I could talk to people online and, and all that. So I've been just kind of in it since. And so when you're writing this book and I ask everybody this, who discusses this topic, like how, how big of an issue do you think this is like the lack of awareness? Like, do you think, you know, there are still millions or even billions of people on this planet who don't understand that these uh, algorithms are having, they have their own agendas and they're, you know, polarizing us and like, you, you know what I mean? Cause that's what I'm always wondering because if there are, I guess the question is, how do we get these books in front of them? You know what I mean? Sure. Um, to the question of, do people, are, are people unaware that the algorithm is yeah. these things to them? I, I think, I think the vast majority of people aren't aware of the mechanics of it, but then they're not aware that, that, um, the things you see are being picked for you and chosen for the attention that you've shown in the past to other things, the, the things that are picked mm -hmm. for that. I mean, I'm, you know, I forget it myself when I'm looking at Instagram <laughs> at time. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I sort of look at a post and think, oh yeah, this is interesting. And it says, well, that's all, that's it for the posts. And I'm thinking, is that really it? Is that really everything? Have you actually, or is it yeah. just you've algorithmically chosen not to show me any other things? And mm. yeah, I, I think the vast majority of people have no, no conception of the, the indifference of the, uh, of the algorithms behind these things to, to their benefit. It's, it's not about your benefit. It's about the network's benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you, do you think there's a certain demographic that's, that's less aware? So like I'm, you know, for example, like I'm 36 years old, my son is 12 years old, right? So the younger people, they're, they're even more involved in this stuff than we were and stuff like that. So do you think there's certain demographics that are unaware that the algorithms are kind of picking and choosing and manipulating and just trying to keep you on as long as possible by showing you certain things? I I think it varies. I think that, uh, you know, some people are aware of it in some places and they're not aware of it in others. So mm. TikTok is, is interesting. I didn't, uh, I didn't really have um, time to examine TikTok, um, mm -hmm. in the book, 
Um, and its its influence is a little difficult to discern. But one of the interesting things about TikTok is that it's really, really powerfully driven by algorithms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and it's not even explicit. You don't tell it, you know, I'm interested in this. And, you know, let's say I'm interested in sports and, you know, and poetry. None of that. It just looks at what you're interested It just measures every microsecond that you spend on looking yeah. at this. Do you flick down? Do you flick up? Do you spend a lot of time on this? Do you like it? It looks at those things and it and it figures out what you're about really quickly. So I suspect that, that you know the younger kids are able to see that that's happening. They're able to perceive it in some places. So mm -hmm. uh, I think on TikTok, on YouTube, uh, I think that that it becomes more more obvious. And when they're perhaps their idols, you know, people who they think are, are really great, are somehow cast down by by the algorithm. I think they notice that too, and and um, you know I've I've got a I've got a son who's uh, twenty, and he talks about things that he puts on YouTube, and he says, "Yeah, I don't even bother with the SEO. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to feed these yeah. people on this." Yeah, the, there is awareness of it. Um, that to some extent, you know, the problem is the older demographic, the people who think they're you know well informed and and know about stuff, mm -hmm. are actually badly informed and don't realise that when they do, for example, a Google search. That the Google search is not uh, indifferent. Yeah. It's not giving you the ten best results. It's giving you the ten results it thinks you'll click on, and mm -hmm. that's a distinction that most people are not aware of. Yeah, I was actually just listening to a podcast this morning, and it's, it's so true. Like, if you're trying to find, you know, the actual quote or source to make sure that it wasn't kind of tweaked or manipulated or, you know, whatever, it's it's really hard. Like, there's certain things that I've looked for, and and I know all the tricks. Like, I'll open up like incognito mode so it doesn't have any of my cookies, and I'll try to like find stuff. And even then, you know, and and I guess you know part of my education about it, like by day, I I work in like uh, digital marketing and stuff, so I'm in the SEO and all that. But uh, but yeah, even when you try to get around it to find different information or better information, it's hard because there's people investing a lot of money because they understand how these algorithms work. You know what I mean? There are people spending a lot of money, and that's something else I don't know if people understand. But you, yeah, in 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 reference to TikTok, uh, I've I've at least played around with just about every social media app, and TikTok is insane. Like it. It will send you down rabbit holes. And like I mentioned, I have a, you know, I have a 12 year old son. Uh, my, my girlfriend has two younger brothers around my son's age and stuff and seeing the kind of, uh, rabbit holes that it leads them down. It kind of blows my mind. I'm like, I can see how these things happen. And, you know, fortunately we're able to talk with them about it and explain it to them and all that. So it is something like, I, I look at that with, uh, you know, just other parents and stuff. Like I, I personally put a lot of responsibility on parents. I'm like, you need to understand how this works. And you, you know, what your kids might be getting into. Um, but with, with you being in the tech field for so long and writing about all this stuff, right. For decades, uh, you know, you, you talk about the early days of the social media platforms. Like, did you or anybody see this? coming this kind of social warming or was it so gradual that it was like wait a second like you you it was too far gone for you to really realize i don't know no one had any conception of of what it would be like at all um yeah i mean the early days of social media it really was the sort of thing where you would come in and you know facebook would look different uh and you'd come in and you know Twitter has added this whole new feature thing called retweeting, and mm -hmm. uh, things were, were were sort of both incremental. You know, you 
you're sort of seeing that there seem to be more people joining them, um, but there didn't seem to be any affection. So, you know, one of the key ways that Twitter has made a difference to the world, I think, is the way that it's become a conduit for news. You know, often if there's a big event, then people will go to, people who are on Twitter at least, will go to Twitter to look for things about that. And Twitter tries to encourage that. It has its sort of events and it has its moments stuff and it has various tabs where it tries to show things that are happening in the world. And that's had an effect, as I write in the book, on journalism and on how people try to get their information. And, you know, it's, hmm. it's significant, I think, that people go to Twitter rather than Facebook for news. Um, because mm -hmm. the algorithms is so powerful on Facebook that it won't give you sort of breaking news. So for example, uh, when there were all the, uh, you know, disturbances in Ferguson in the U S and I think 2014, um, you know, the big thing on Facebook was the ice bucket challenge, you know, yeah. that was the main thing that was being shown. Whereas on Twitter, you know, it was all over, uh, all over the place. So, so there is that, that difference. So no, but we didn't have an idea that it would, that it would come up and, and be this thing that, that where you'd have waves of outrage flooding around the place where Facebook would be radicalizing people from the far right, uh, in the U S to go and, you know, try to, uh, you know, protest in, in bizarre ways and, you know, try to mm -hmm. get the capital and stuff. Yeah. You, you'd, you'd have to you'd be a science fiction writer to be honest in in 2006 or 2007 to, to write something like that to say yeah, yeah you know I, I sort of think that you know give it 15 years or so and and this will be wildly out of control that that just didn't seem feasible again you know that was back in the days when the principal means of getting information was a news websites and be google which was reflecting what the news websites were telling you if you wanted to find something out you'd go to google and it would probably direct you to a wikipedia page and okay. actually you know, through all of this, Wikipedia remains the place where, you know, you can at least get some sort of sensible, reflective, informative, um, you know, news almost, uh, certainly information. Um, but, but to a large extent, you know, all the, all the social networks, certainly YouTube, and to a lot of, large extent, Google, they've, they've all been sort of corrupted, sort of maybe the wrong word or maybe the right word, but they've, they've been overtaken by the the people who want to profit from mm -hmm. misinformation and there's a big market in profiting from misinformation now yeah yeah and that that, that kind of transitions perfectly to my my next question because you spend a uh you know uh, a chunk of the book uh talking about the early days and like a lot of these started with good intentions right like you know for example like there there used to only be a few main news sources which was good and bad right but and uh you know social media kind of created this public forum where people could have conversations and you know uh it, it kind of leveled the playing field where anybody could you know, even start a blog, right? And put their opinions out there and it got rid of some of the gatekeepers. So there were a lot of good intentions when this all started. And like, I'm just curious your thoughts. Like you just mentioned some of the, you know, uh, you know, money incentives, right? There's a lot of money to be made from the people who want to spread this information, all that stuff. Like, do you think there was, you know, there's a, uh, like a big, uh, place where, where some of these, uh, platforms went wrong, like when their values shifted from this you know, good intentions to kind of, uh oh, you know, and just forgot about that. I don't think there was ever a particular point where, where that happened. I think it was, it's actually built into the system. Yeah. If, yeah. You're, if you're the basic model that you work on is we get lots of people, 
we algorithmically hold them on the network, you know, by showing them things that we think they're engaged with. We make money from showing them adverts because they spend their time there. Then actually it's built into the system that if people can find their own content, which they can somehow monetize on there, um, then you're going to get false content on there. You're going to get misinformation. The thing about misinformation, and, and again, this is in the book, the thing that the reason why fake news or, or you know, false news, false rumors spread so much better than uh, the real news, the, the actual truth, is that you can say pretty much anything you like in fake stuff. Uh, you can mm -hmm. tweak it to what, what people are interested in. And there are sites out there, you know, sites that call themselves, quote, satire sites, which are actually, you know, they're just, it's just fake news. They're just yeah. only for ads. Um, but they, they write all sorts of crazy things that, that aren't true, but will encourage people to click on them. And that's, that's the, the advantage that they have over, you know, the truth is that mm -hmm. it's far more attractive because you can, you can make it up. You know, that's why stories attract us so much more than the nuance of, of reality. And you see mm -hmm. things like, um, you know, the, the Afghanistan pullout that there's been, there are all sorts of stories going oh, yeah. around. I mean, the most, the most recent one is about, oh, there was this guy who was hanged from a, from a helicopter. Turns out that's not true. Uh, mm -hmm. in fact, he was, <laughs> it seems he was trying to, he was perfectly well alive. He's trying to paint something. Um, but that's yeah. the story. Yeah. It's so much more convenient to tell the full story because it gives you a way to get at the other side, you know, it calls in the tribalism. So, um, the, the, unless the networks were prepared to take the gigantic step of moderating everything and saying, no, this isn't true. I'm just going to kick this off the, you know, I'm going to kick this post off the network because it's not true. Um, which to some extent they did during the pandemic, you know, they sort of, you know, they, they, they girded themselves to the whole question of, uh, okay, this is a deadly pandemic. We've actually got to, you know, take our responsibilities seriously now. And they really did a, almost a 180 on what they thought about, should we allow this to be up and should, or should we you know, remove it? Facebook in particular, which for years have been saying, no, you know, anything's fine. And Mark Zuckerberg had even gone on the record saying, well, you know, people yeah. Holocaust deniers, well, you know, everyone's got a point of view. It was, it, those weren't quite his words, but it was sort of like that. Uh, when it came to the pandemic, they really changed their tune and started removing people, removing content that they thought was actually going to be harmful. Um, and in the, in the same way, they've changed their tune about Holocaust denial and they now remove that. So there's, there's evolution there. And I think that, um, that, that they're starting to see that it's not actually a great model to, to be like this all the time. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that brings up a interesting, you know, story. So real quick, like, uh, cause my, my, you know, I, I primarily grew on YouTube, right. And for a while I got really into like, especially during COVID and all the misinformation, uh, I wanted to, you know, debunk some of this stuff. And I, I, I really try to teach people, you know, just recognizing our own biases and how to think better and stuff. Well, anyways, uh, before they really cracked down on YouTube on two and on channels, I made a video debunking a QAnon conspiracy video about COVID, right? Saying don't wear masks and all this other stuff. This is pre-vaccine. Well, YouTube, uh, something happened with the algorithms that ended up taking my video down and giving my channel a strike and you get three before it deletes your channel, right? But you do have the opportunity to manually appeal. So I did, right? And you get a you know pretty quick response within 24 hours and they say nope we're upholding our our decision and that's when i get to a point where i'm like okay so even when we do 
get you like, so you have the algorithms, your second la layer for quality assurance is a human, right? But if the human is then not checking it, that is a huge issue, right? So my question is, cause I try to empathize. I was talking with somebody about this yesterday. YouTube, for example, has thousands of hours of content uploaded every single minute, right? So you gotta, you gotta outsource some of that to the algorithms and say, hey, check this stuff. And then that'll filter to the humans, right? But even still, I'm wondering, I'm like, do they have, is it, is it even realistic to have enough manpower, right? So, so I empathize with them, but my, my video didn't go back up and the other video didn't get taken down until I got the press involved. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to your thoughts about that. Like, is it even something that can be done by having that many humans moderating and checking? You know, what's have to get pretty much everyone in the world. You know, the failure is in the model. The failure, the failure is is absolutely in there. Uh, you can't you can't do it perfectly. Um, yeah. You, you know, and the algorithms are always going to fail as well because they don't understand the nuance that the reality of, of what what is what is criticism. You know, it's it's say yeah. the same thing, but in a particular tone of voice. What is a tone of voice? Mm. You can't program this stuff in. And, and if you're doing extracts in this video and saying but 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 this and but that, you know, it's, it's just going on trigger words. And the person who rejected your mm. appeal, yeah, probably had a thousand, you know, a thousand of them to, to deal with. And are they going to take yeah. the time to actually go through a whole video? I mean, I, I find it pretty exhausting just, you know, um, trying to watch videos on, on YouTube anyway, because, you know, yeah. it's a subject I've particularly chosen to watch. Then I find all the, all the sort of, you know, the introductions and the sort of getting used to the people and things like this is. Uh, it's like mm -hmm. cognitive load. I'd rather just read it almost. And <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. Oh, YouTube, YouTube is, is set itself up to fail in that respect. Yeah. It can never be perfect. You you could only do it if you, if you basically asked, you know, I don't know, everyone in India and maybe China as well to, to check each video as it went up or else yeah. you have trusted sources and you say, okay, uh, well, you know, stuff from this TV station, you know, stuff from, from this producer, stuff from that producer, this stuff we, we except has got a, has been, you know, had a gatekeeper already. Everything else goes into a pile and, and, you know, we don't entirely trust it, but, but YouTube doesn't want to do that. They, they don't want to be difficult in that way and say, well, you know, we don't actually necessarily trust, you know, 99% of what the world uploads to us because that puts in, uh -huh. puts them into the difficult position of, well, are we here to, to put stuff out and to, to be a video platform or are we actually in some way a publisher? They never will do a publisher because that's got all sorts of yeah. other responsibilities. They, they just yeah. want to be a place that where stuff happens and they show people ads. They'd be so happy. You know, if it wasn't for the humans, this would all be great. You know, it'd be a terrific thing if it wasn't for the humans, if they could just get the you know, algorithms to create the, the video content and algorithms to, to review it and the you know, humans to watch the ads, they, they'd just be in heaven, but sadly the world's not like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what you think about this, because uh, you, like you referenced like Wikipedia, right? So Wikipedia is largely like it's it's crowdsourced fact checking. They have like there's volunteers, there's people who come in and say, oh, this is bad information. They change it. And, you know, all that stuff. I've, I've recently been, uh, you know, educating myself on how the Wiki ecosystem kind of works. 
So then uh, recently, Twitter came out with this new feature called Birdwatch. And as somebody, you know, who cares about the truth and stuff like that, I got into the program. I, I'm not super active, but I like to check and see what people are saying. Because uh, for those who don't know what Birdwatch is, like, it's it's the community kind of policing each other. And they can go in and say, this is misinformation or whatever. And I'm not a thousand percent sure if it's trying to train an algorithm or what the end goal is with it. But anyways, I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think that that is a potential solution. It's getting the community to flag stuff as, hey, this is misinformation. Because I could see how that can go terribly wrong, but I can also see how, hey, then you don't got to hire a bunch of people. And then you just get people who care about the truth policing the community. What do you think? The difficulty is, I mean, in, in principle, yes, it works. But the difficulty is always how you reward people for doing it. If the reward for doing it is some sort of status, then the incentives are all are bad. But if the reward is simply that the, you get accuracy, then the incentive is good. But people prefer status. Yeah, people are very status driven. You had one of your people who we had on before. I think it was uh, Chris Pale um, was was talking about how you know we're very status driven when we go on these networks. Um, the thing about Wikipedia is that actually no one sees who the Wikipedia editors are. Unless you dive into that ecosystem, sort of, you know, go around the back mm -hmm. of the building, as it were. Um, and that, I think, is part of why Wikipedia does work, is because actually you don't know who the hell the editors are, and you don't care. Mm. Um, whereas if you have something like Birdwatch, and if there is a thing where you say, yeah, I'm, you know, hey, you know, I did all this fact-checking today, then th that carries the risk of, of um, you know, bad incentives where people gather around someone and say, well, this person... This person's fact-checked all these things and, and, you know, so they're right. So they should fact-check these other things. And again, you, you then have the problem of domains of expertise. You know, if you're a virologist, are you therefore competent to be an expert on epidemiology and vice versa? And if you're, you know, really good at epidemiology, are you the sort of person who should be fact-checking stuff about education? How, how narrowly do you define the debate? It, it, you know, it becomes really problematic. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, in the book, I talk about the Facebook's fact-checking efforts. Well, oh, yeah, it would, you know, the algorithms, it seems would, would pull out things that were questionable and send them to fact-checkers who would then laboriously and, you know, humans would, uh, go and check the facts and you know, slap labels on things to say they're false or not. Problem being that it took too long, um, to do the checking and the, the stuff that was false would uh, be up there in the meantime. By the time that people had actually checked it, you know, it, had, it had basically had its viral lifetime and, um, you know, you couldn't catch it in time. Again, you know, mm -hmm. you run with the problem of, you know, fake stuff tends to be more popular than, than true stuff. I mean, a, yeah. a lot of what I'm thinking about here is very much in the context sort of of the pandemic and, um, you know, anti-vaccine um, thing, yeah. which, which is actually, you know, is physically dangerous. It's, uh, and, and yet the problem is how do you get incentives for fact-checking about this stuff, um, which works, which works effectively. You know, I've, I've sort of given up now basically on, on trying to discuss this stuff with people who are anti-vax on, on Twitter, you know, when they get the yeah. replies about it, I just block them because I know them yeah. to change their mind. You know, I can see the four, I can see the flaws in their thinking. You know, I had someone today who was saying to me, oh yeah, well, you know, these, these vaccines aren't live attenuated, you know, the mRNA vaccines and yeah, to explain why. You, you know, an mRNA vaccine cannot be live attenuated. It's, it's a completely meaningless idea. 
but you know mm-hmm. they'd heard the phrase and they thought, yeah. oh, you know, lie detector—that's a thing. That's a thing for viruses, and you know that's how they used to be. Um, that's that's not how you make a, an effective virus these days. You couldn't have produced it quickly enough. The uh, the, the the level of sort of misconception is is colossal, and yeah. how you break through that is one of the big problems of our age. And the problem that I also see, you know, rather like global warming is all being enabled by us driving cars around. Um, you know, social warming is being enabled by the way that this sort of misinformation can be picked up and then spread. And it's really hard to, to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, you know, to, to sort yeah. of get the misinformation to go away because the answer to misinformation doesn't seem to be more information. And I'm not entirely yeah. sure what the answer is at the moment. Yeah, no, and, 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 and I love just, you know, just seeing what people's views are. You've got a lot of nuances and things to think about, you know, if we did do this kind of crowdsourcing one. And, and you mentioned status. I, I actually talked to uh, Will Store and uh, the, you know, at the time we were recording this, this new book, The Status Game comes out this, this week. And, and uh, his book, he talks about how you can get in status within your in-group, right? So it's not even inverse out. It's within your in-group. You're raising in status by being even more just anti-vax or anti-mask or whatever. So one thing that I'm, I'm constantly wondering, so it's, it's just, you know, like, let's, let's say, you know, the, the social media platforms like Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, uh, Jack Dorsey, they, they do the best they can. They get some great rules. The, the, the question then that I, I wonder, and it's kind of something that you're talking about. I, I often wonder, do people actually care about the truth and and just for example i had uh john petrocelli on here he he wrote the book uh the life-changing science of detecting bullshit right and it's about like caring about the truth right because bullshitting is like oh yeah well you know just a complete disregard for the truth so i'm wondering like you know because i'm trying to learn more about uh you know group identity and stuff like like when you give people the truth when you give them the evidence like do they care like even if facebook and even if you know twitter only showed you the truth that doesn't get rid of certain news outlets and stuff like that. So do you think people are just, you know, driven by their confirmation bias and group identity? You know what I mean? Oh yeah. People are, people are enormously driven by that. (laughs) The the truth is, the truth is, can be, sometimes it's really hard to understand and sometimes uh, it's very nuanced, you know, sometimes it's got subtleties embedded in it. So for example, uh, in the UK, children aged uh, over 16, between 16 and 18, are only having a single vaccine shot compared to the US where mm. they're having two vaccine shots. And the reason for that is because the, uh, the, the committee that looks at you know, the safety of vaccines here reckons that the risk of myocarditis or endocarditis, which is uh, mm. heart inflammation, uh, gut inflammation, is slightly elevated from the second shot, but not elevated enough to make it worrisome after the first shot while still mm. giving you protection from the virus. So you know, the truth about that is quite subtle. It requires balance yeah. of risk. And if you say this to people, then they go, well, that means the vaccine is not safe. And, <laughs> right. yeah, the, the, and that becomes a, a way of strengthening their existing, you know, it's a confirmation bias thing, if that's what they feel. Or, or else if they're, um, or else if they're people who, you know, are very much in favor of vaccination, they say, well, that's, but you know, really that's, uh, that's not a problem. It's, it's so small anyway. And the, the thing of saying, well, you know, that, uh, you know, you've got to wait up, you, you've got to be open-minded to the possibility, but, but, you know, once you've got the, 
definitive evidence, then you stay on one side or the other. Um, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a difficult thing to explain to people. And, and, you know, a lot of it, I think comes from, from the scientific process, from being able to consider lots of different things as possibilities, throw them away when they're shown not to work and then move mm-hmm. on to, you know, the things that you do know are true. The, the, the difficulty is, as you, as you say, you know, you show, you say this stuff to people and they weren't necessarily accepted and, and high status people, which might just mean someone with a lot of followers. Um, people are, are going to be very reluctant to show that they've changed their mind. They've got to be quite, uh, humble in that way to, to, um, you know, accept that they've been wrong, that they've been saying things that weren't true or, or that, you know, they, they can't support now. Um, that's one of the most difficult things for people to do generally. And, you know, weirdly journalists actually get a lot of practice at it these days. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, because, because, you know, things come along and you say, oh, okay, well, we thought it was this and now it's that. Um, uh, and so for, for all the way that, that people, you know, actually attack journalists on social media, actually journalists get really good practice in saying, so, you know, yesterday we told you this today, you know, actually is different. And yeah. a lot of people are not accustomed to that sort of, uh, flexibility of thinking and yeah if the social networks were to show you just the things that were true you know that that probably another social network would spring up which would say no we're going to show you the things that are that are really true and and yeah there'd be, there'd be fresh biases to have there and to some extent you know the the, the problem is in ourselves the problem is in our uh, inability to to break out of our, our, our ways of thinking and our Oh, rigidity of thinking and, and, you know, it takes a lot of practice to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely difficult and something that I, I spend a, a lot of time trying to figure out, right? Like, because we, we, we get defensive when our beliefs are challenged and, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, let's, let's say, you know, just uh, somebody who's been very anti-vax or anti-mask or whatever, they realize they're wrong. There's so many things that keep them from admitting that they're wrong. Uh, their status, right? They, you know, what if their their job, whenever it's like you think about a news person who's been doing this and then one day they snap out of it. And what's crazy is we've recently seen, you know, especially here in the States, uh, you know, conservative news hosts dying from COVID who were against the vaccine. You know what I mean? So I'm like, how many how many friends do they have that are also loud voices that would say like, oh, crap, you know, but then, you know, then maybe their media organization would get mad at them because there's like this admission of being wrong. And then is there legal issues and, and all it's so, so it seems like there's also incentives to not admit you're wrong when you have that platform. You know what I mean? Mm, oh, absolutely. I think it's three, three radio hosts now who've, who've said, you know, COVID is not, not important, nothing to worry about. Who've died in the U S from it. Um, you know, clearly the problem is being a radio host. It seems to be a, you know, it's a real indicator of, uh, of risk, but, um, <laughs> uh, it, in many cases, you know, it, it's interesting. I've, I've seen examples where, you know, they've, uh, you know, reported examples of people on their deathbeds where they said, uh, you know, crap, I really wish I'd got a vaccine. Uh, and people who don't at all, people who, who, uh, who insist to the end that, you know, actually it's, they're fine. They're, they're going to be, they're going to be okay. And mm. they don't regret anything. So, yeah. you know, if, if you're not going to have a deathbed conversion, then, uh, I guess you're pretty set in your ways and, yeah. um, how, you know, again, how do you get out of an information ecosystem that's, I would say it's deteriorated so badly that people can't mm-hmm. change their, their views. Um, I wonder to some extent, 
whether the US has this worse in terms of polarization because it's such a strong two-party system where you, you, it's really difficult to be in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. the, you know, there's, there's sort of no, no center party in the way that there is, for example, in the UK or uh, yeah. in other you know, Western democratic countries where you have multiple parties at elections. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that to some extent that the polarization in the US uh, is, is also a result of um, the rural-urban split but, you know, mm -hmm. the thing is always that, you know, the social network's exacerbated. They amplify it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, it's to their benefit to, to, for it to go, to go on because that's what the algorithms see as engagement. That's what they see as a good thing. And yeah. this is the effect. This is the social warming effect that you see all around you is that, you know, people seem to be a bit angrier. They seem to be a bit more set in their ways. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that you, again, I think it was to Chris Pell who, who was saying, you know, that the echo chamber thing is not quite true. People see stuff that comes from outside their echo chamber quite a lot. But what it does is it reinforces what they think. They stick, yeah. stick <laughs> closely to what they believed before. They don't change their minds. And again, this is, this is the problem is how do you, how do you get a population that will, that will be open to, to new ideas? Um, uh, I mean, you look around the world and is there any country where, where people are like that? You know, and, yeah. You know, so the only place where you might think it sort of happens is China, but the way that happens in China is they tell people that different <laughs> yeah. idea. You know, it's an authoritarian yeah. system where you know if they if they say, okay, kids are now going to have one hour a week to play video games, then that becomes the way that uh, you know kids are. Um, yeah. And that's not quite the sort of model that um, you know Western democracies want to follow. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's 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 weird. It, it almost seems like uh, incentive structures as a whole would have to change, right? There'd have to be some kind of incentive for wanting to change the idea. Where the incentive isn't like you mentioned, like in China, where it's like, hey, change your idea like this way. <laughs> but but yeah, we were kind of talking about you know uh, you know pundits or people with uh, big followings on social media. So something I'm I'm hoping that you can kind of unpack a little. One of one part you mentioned in the book is that you know we have this multitude of choices for like sources and news sources, and you would think that would create more equality, but you say it actually creates more inequality because there's so many choices. Can you kind of like explain what you mean by that, how that happens? Sure. So there's an effect called the power law, which is seen a lot in nature when you have sort of self-organizing systems. So most people are familiar with the idea of the bell curve, you know, how tall are people in the population? How much do babies wear at, uh, when they're born? Uh, and that's the familiar bell curve. You know, the one that goes up, it's got the big middle, and then it goes down. The power law is very different. The power law is really big at one end and it tails away, it, it falls down really fast, tails away to infinity. And uh, the power law describes things like how big are cities, you know, how many people in a city, or uh, the size of beaches, or the size of forests. It's a sort of a, it's a, a thing to do with self-organizing the way that things sort of come together when they have the chance. And what you find is, um, for example, with blogs, um, when the blogosphere first started getting going, that was great, you know, anyone could start a blog. What soon turned out to be the case was that you had a few people who were bloggers who had really big followings, and then you had a gazillion other bloggers who you know, pretty much nobody linked to, nobody read their stuff, 
uh, you know, if you were running mm. people down the you know, the long tail there, it was quite discouraging. You'd write something and, you know, maybe once a week someone would come along and maybe you know, put a like or something on you or a little comment on it. Um, mm-hmm. And you linked to the big bloggers and you thought that might help, but actually all that seemed to do was just, you know, bring them up in the search results. So mm. the, the power law like that is a, is a very powerful process that is a sort of natural outcome of how we how we are as people we we sort of look to a few sources and we discount many others and you see the same mm. uh, with social media social media followings which is that you have comparatively small number of people who have gigantic followings you know 40 mm. million followers 20 million followers whatever um and you have bazillions of people who have you know 10 followers or whatever and for them yeah, yeah. life on social networks seems like a a scrabble almost you know, to get attention, which is the thing that we covet as humans. You know, we just love the attention. And so yeah. we'll sort of respond to the big um, accounts. You know, they'll, they'll give all the accounts these sort of, you know, the response that the, that the interaction that, that means that the, the, the accounts get even bigger. You know, they follow and hoping that they'll notice, you know, you know sort of notice me senpai sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And they never get the love back. So that's, that's a process by which, yeah, it, it just sort of sorts itself naturally into this, um, mm-hmm. by you have colossal numbers for a few people, very powerful influences, and most of the rest of the population doesn't get much of a say, doesn't have much influence, doesn't yeah. have much, uh, effect on, on what is said. They can all agree with some of the big accounts. They can all be part of a huge wave. They can all be part of a way that, uh, you know, everyone agrees about something. They can be part of a tribe, a gigantic tribe, in that mm. but they're not actually influencing direction. Yeah. So, so, uh, it, it kind of, the power law kind of sounds like, are, are you familiar with the, uh, the Matthew effect? They call it the Matthew effect. So it, it sounds similar. Like, so the Matthew effect, I like got a thing from something from the Bible, but it's like the rich get richer kind of type deal. Why? But kind of like what you're talking about, like a big account, you know, it gets consolidated up there. Like for example, going back to coming from the YouTube world, uh, you know, I covered a lot about like mental health and addiction recovery and stuff like that. But you like, uh, I'm very like, look, uh, like into like looking at, uh, analytics and stuff like that and seeing, but anyways, uh, you know, knowing how the algorithms work and, you know, keeping people on the platform, you see that, you know, a channel that's big just gets bigger because that's how the algorithms are set up. They're like, oh, well, uh, okay. So you have two people talking about the exact same subject. One of them gets 50,000 views in the first 24 hours. The other one gets 200 views in the, in the first 24 hours. They're going to say, oh, well, clearly there's something about that one with the algorithm just thinks, Hey, there's something about that 50,000 view one that must be good. So now we're we're going to send more people to it. And the one that has 200 views, we're not going to send people over there. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of how, uh, yeah, it, I, I've seen it happen and it's harder for smaller people to kind of, you know, break through. Like I've just kind of realized, you know, it's just part of my crazy work ethic. I'm like, okay, well, I just got to work 10 times harder because I don't have a gigantic platform. You know what I mean? But, uh, you do see it it, it kind of, uh, consolidating at the top. And I, I'm curious, like, you know, because there's, there's like the halo effect where people think, oh, this person has a big following or this person makes a lot of money. They must know what they're talking about. So do you think this is more of an algorithmic issue or just our issue of just being like, oh, this person has a lot of followers, so they must know what they're talking about type deal. So it's us rather than us looking for something that might be smaller and kind of independent. You know what I mean? 
Well, the algorithm follows what the people do. So mm. uh, it was interesting. Recently, Facebook released a, a report about the most viewed posts um, on Facebook in the previous three months. And it turned out that a number of those posts were actually plagiarized. They had already appeared mm. where by someone else on Facebook. And then they'd be copied by a particular person who just had a bit more leverage, a few more followers, and those things have gone gigantic. So it's not even about the content. It can just be about us and it can just be real luck. You know, that someone picks it up, someone with a big you know, tweets it or, you know, shares it with their followers. They can speak, uh, you know, it's, it's too easy to underestimate how much of a part luck plays in this. The, the, the <laughs> luck is, you know, luck is one of these, one of these things, you know, luck and, and, and being early, I guess, you know, uh, yeah. being early is always one of the big things on, on social networks because that's a way to get recommended by the algorithm, recommended by, you know, the people who are the early people who build up them, the big followings, which is why, you know, whenever a new social network gets started, people are always eager to jump onto it, reserve their handle on it and to try yeah. to you know, milk it for as much as they can, because that can be the, you know, your best chance to get in on the ground floor. Uh, yeah. You know, with, with, you know, with Snapchat, with TikTok, that's, that's very much what we've seen. I, I think that, um, that, that when it comes to the way that the way that, you know, the question of, is it the person, is it the algorithm? It's, yeah, uh, it, you can look around at anything, you know, what, why do some bands really make it and other bands who you think it are just yeah. don't, you know, it's, it can be the luck that your song got played on the radio at a particular time and someone heard it and they, they yeah. it and, 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 you know, you never underestimate the role of luck in this world. Uh, so yeah. the algorithm can help. Um, but, but yeah, stupid. Dumb luck actually, I think, plays a big part. <laughs> yeah, no, it, exactly, exactly. Um, something I, 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 I've been dying to ask you since we're getting towards the end here is, is if you could, because I need everybody to go buy your book, but your book was the first one. You, you discussed the Myanmar situation and how social media played a role. I've heard about it for the last year, and I understand that there's a problem. I understand, you know, uh, you know, with the Uyghur population and everything like that. I understand the problem, but I didn't understand how social media played a role and you broke it down. And I know you have like a chapter dedicated to this in the book almost, but can you kind of simplify it a little bit and discuss like, just, just kind of like the, the, the key points of how social media played a role in the situation in Myanmar? Sure. So uh, Myanmar used to be known as Burma. Uh, it's a country down in uh, the, down in Southeast Asia, it's sort of uh, borders Bangladesh, uh, sort of near Vietnam, all those, that sort of area. Um, it's got a very mixed uh, ethnic population. Um, yeah, there are dozens of different ethnicities there. Um, but the principal religion is Buddhist. Uh, it's one of almost the last redoubts of Buddhism in the world. Um, but it's also got a minority Muslim population, uh, principally uh, the Rohingyas, who uh, sort of to some extent, some of them came from Bangladesh, but some are also, you know, they've been living there for centuries as well. Uh, in 2010, um, there was a military um, government which began to open the country up to sort of democratic change. Uh, and they opened it up particularly to mobile phones uh, mm. and also to the internet. Um, so Facebook went from zero, and there's really only Facebook, which is the important social network there. Facebook went from zero in 2010 
to there being uh, something like uh, half the population owning smartphones by 2015, I think, and something like half the population being on Facebook. You know, it, it just mm. basically went with the, everyone had a smartphone, everyone had a Facebook account. But the, yeah. um, the thing is that this was a population which had no experience with computers. They yeah. didn't know what, um, you know, what like meant. They didn't know what report abuse meant, you know, except that it might get the, the goons to come around and you know, you'd disappear in the night. You had a population entirely uh, innocent of the whole thinking about what goes on uh, in, in a country with, you know, what the internet is about. And yet mm -hmm. expose them to a social network, which is trying to uh, gain their attention all the time and to show them things. There was an extra problem, which is that uh, there's a language barrier. So Facebook works using um, a computer system using Unicode for what is written in, uh, on it. Uh, whereas um, because they'd had to grow up basically outside the internet, outside uh, computer use, they uh, used a system called Zorgui which is a way of rendering the Burmese language so that it would work on the screen. Uh, long story short, Facebook couldn't moderate Zorgui. They couldn't actually understand what it was. The translations were mm. wrong. So it didn't realize when people were fermenting trouble on social media. Mm. So you had existing ethnic tensions, which are considerable and, you know, predate the arrival of Facebook. Um, you know, there, there had been, you know, genocides before involving the Rohingya um, by the, by the Buddhist majority. Um, uh, but what happened was the arrival of Facebook meant that people who are looking to cause trouble, people looking to cause ethnic conflict, people looking to stir things up, got a free reign, no moderation, algorithmic reinforcement, excessive tribalism, excessive yeah, yeah. means that a lot of people got killed. Now, the actual genocide that took place in 2016, when, uh, you know, the, the Burmese army, uh, drove uh, huge, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya from their villages, burned thing, you know, burned villages, bulldozed them, killed people, uh, drove them almost into the sea or over the border into Bangladesh. That's not directly down to Facebook. Facebook did not foment that, but it did make the conditions exist whereby the government could excuse it and where the, the Buddhist majority would not question it at all because they had been led to believe that the Rohingya were the bad people in all this, that they were looking yeah. to displace the Buddhist population, which is something that couldn't happen. They, they, they're just far too numerous, the, uh, the Buddhists, compared to the Muslims, who are a, a tiny proportion. So uh, you had a, a situation which was sort of, it's almost like a, like a lab experiment for, you know, mm. what happens with social war week? If you take a population that's never been exposed to the internet, was completely naive about what the effects would be, what happens if you just let this loose on them? Uh, and, and basically it's not warming. It's like, you know, turning the gas up to, uh, yeah, yeah. Turning the gas up to maximum. And, you know, in the course of six years, you go from a situation where things are, you know, a bit uneasy, but you know, there's a generally, it's generally peaceful to one where you have a literal genocide, uh, and Facebook was implicated in it for, for its role in helping to stir up conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like you've been, you know, in the, you know, a tech journalist for years and like, did you see this coming? Like, there's nothing that could prepare you. Like what happens if you take an entire population unfamiliar with this stuff, drop millions of smartphones and a new social network on there, and then don't really have the, the, uh, uh ability to moderate in any way, let that just keep going. Like there's no way to anticipate that. And, and yeah, so, so to, to bring up the 
conversation towards the end. I, you, you talked a lot about like some solutions and stuff. And one thing you talk about is, you know, uh, uh, like, like, uh, there's some debates around like regulations and stuff. Like I'm, I'm very familiar with the conversations here in the United States, right? Like there's a, there's always like a free speech debate and, you know, should court, how much power should corporations have? Should they be decided in the truth and, and all that, but then country by country, it kind of varies as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm just curious, like, uh, do you think it's like, uh, you know, regulation, do you think it's us getting together and having more discussions or, or what are, what are some of the solutions? Uh, and, and if you want, you can start with, you know, are there reasonable regulations that you, you have in mind? My suggestion is that you actually limit the maximum size that a social network can be, the maximum number of users it can have uh, mm. in any country. So uh, I think a sort of a ceiling of 250 million is actually a pretty good number. The reason why is because as the size of a social network increases arithmetically, the problems with it, the, the requirement for moderation increases geometrically. So if you have 10 people on a social network, um, you know, you can have, say, 100 interactions. When you have 20 people mm -hmm. on a social network, you suddenly have the potential for 400 interactions. Your moderation problem has gone up geometrically, even though you've only doubled in size. When you've got something like Facebook, which is 2 billion, 3 billion, or whatever it is, um, like, you know, it's in the multiple billions, your, your moderation problem is colossal. It's absolutely yes. colossal. Uh, you know, all the, all the ways the interactions happen, you simply cannot keep, keep charge of it. Uh, and if you restrict it to 250 million people and say, you know, if someone leaves, then someone else can join, but you know, beyond that, um, that's our limit. Then suddenly you make the moderation a lot simpler. You reduce the potential for harmful interaction. Uh, even at the same time, you reduce the potential for good interaction, but you know, the, you can't have everything at once. Um, and you also, it's, it's quite easy to implant. You simply say, you know, this is, this is the maximum number we're going to lay on. Um, mm -hmm. and it might be inconvenient. You know, sometimes you've got to take steps in life. Uh, you know, regulation is about reducing the bad effects of things. You know, that's why you have regulations in the first place. And, you know, it's, it's why, you know, you don't sort of allow people to carry nuclear weapons around because you <laughs> yeah. decided that's not a great idea. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's, I think, would be the, the thing that would make the big difference um, as, as quickly as possible. Might be tricky yeah. to implement. But actually, I think you'd start to see the effects and you'd have a sort of a social cooling effect that, that you'd, um, you know, rather in the way that when you don't belong to a social network, you know, when people talk to me about, I don't know, Gal or Parler or, or, or Snapchat or, <laughs> and they say, oh yeah, look at this thing from it. You go and look at it and it's sort of like going and visiting something in a zoo. You go and look at it and go, yeah, that's interesting. And then you go away from it and you, yeah. know, you don't spend any more time on it. it it's, it's a sort of a curio rather than being something that assaults the very fabric of your, of your thinking. Um, mm -hmm. It's less important when it's somewhere else. And I, I think that's, that's a, a huge benefit. I think that's something that we really need. I think, because I think, you know, social warming is having a bad effect just the way that global warming is. Um, but one of them is a lot easier to solve than the other. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting, uh, too. Like, like in the book, uh, you know, you, you discuss kind of how, you know, with this, you know, a limitless amount of users that can come on, how things then spread from country to country and people aren't as familiar with what's going on. Like it, it it's, 
it's almost like, uh, you know, just uh, no travel restrictions during COVID, right? You don't know what's going where, but it's interesting too, because I, maybe it's because I'm like, my main thing is like psychology and human behavior and stuff. But like, I, I almost think that social uh, issues like this should be delegated to people like Chris Bale, right? Like they've done controlled experiments, like getting people in groups and having their own like kind of experimental platforms to see what decreases polarization, what helps, what hurts and, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, geez, at least like have social media platforms hiring people like this to do that, you know, and, and look into it because I could see, I could see, you know, uh, your suggestion working and, and limiting that stuff. And I think there's ways to test it and just give things a try because one of the things that, you know, I look at just not just with social media, but with a lot of issues, it's just like, okay, like I, I know that, you know, you might have issues against this experiment, but the thing is it's not working right now. So we should at least try <laughs> at least try something else because you know with with you know uh just the spread of misinformation like like storming the capital like 2016 was crazy but sitting here sitting here like watching this happen for a conspiracy theory that you know bubbled up online i'm like that blows my mind like people are risking their lives over something and trying to overthrow the government over something that we don't have evidence for like that that freaks me out. It's someone who tries to live in reality, you know what I mean? But but yeah, at the end of the day, you know, uh, something needs to be done. And and yeah, like, uh, yeah, Charles, we didn't, I, I have a whole page of notes. We didn't even touch on half the stuff that you go over in your book. Uh, yeah, there's so much you talk about distrust of the media, how it increases polarization, you know, inoculation, all sorts of stuff. So I hope everybody grabs the book. Can, can you let everybody know uh, where the book is? Is it available in all countries? And where can they find you to keep up with your work? Uh, so the uh, the book is available in the UK and the US so far. I think we sold the rights also in Korea recently. Uh, it's mm-hmm. available uh, on Kindle through Audible uh, as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Charles Arthur, A-R-T-H-U-R. Um, don't bother to try to find me on Facebook because I'd never been moved. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, I do a daily sort of newsletter of tech news and links uh, at uh, The Overspill, theoverspill.blog. Uh, awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, that's me. Very cool. So, so questions, since I'm kind of a tech nerd too, what kind of stuff do you cover in the uh, newsletter for uh, tech stuff? Things that interest me. So, uh, <laughs> it'll, you know, some of it's always Facebook stuff. Some of it is um, stuff about, you know, supply chain hassle mm. sometimes. Um, there's a, you have to look really, it's, it, because it's uh, wide range. It is technology. It's science. It's uh, it's 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 all stuff. It's all sorts. Um, and yeah. sometimes it's complete random stuff. Like you know, how to tell if someone's drowning because they don't look yeah. like drowning. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a big variety. I, I dig it because I, I I fell in love with your writing from this book. So I'm like, I need I need some more Charles. So <laughs> so yeah. So thank you thank you so much. I love the book, and I'll link all that stuff down in the description. And and yeah, maybe we'll we'll be able to do this again sometime. Chris, thank you so much. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charles. And yeah, I, I hope 
I hope this made you interested in getting the book because, you know, just even, even after like going back through this episode, I was like, God, there were so many good things in that book. And I've had authors on here, you know, to talk about different aspects of social media and don't, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, I've had authors on here who have taken different angles and everything. And that's what I'm always, I'm always surprised when somebody like Charles or any of these other authors can take these topics that are talked about so much and provide something new and unique where we, we, we learn something that we haven't heard a bajillion times, you know? So I really appreciate Charles taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you head down to the description below, follow Charles over on Twitter, make sure you grab a copy of, book, of the book. And I've linked his blog. If you want to check that out too, it's, it's great. Like I said, I've been reading it lately and all that stuff. All right. But yeah, before I let you go, uh, head down to the description, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. Um, not only will you be updated about, you know, episodes of books I'm reading and all that, but I enjoy talking with all of you. And I've been working on a lot of new projects. Um, I've been writing a lot recently. Uh, I've been trying to keep it consistent daily. I've only missed a day or two here and there, but I've been publishing over on Substack. So I, I tweet about those. I post them on Instagram as well. So if you, if you, if you love writing and you want to see what your boy, Chris is writing about, Make sure you check that out. All right. But yeah, uh, a few ways that you could support the podcast that are absolutely free. One, like I told you at the beginning, make sure you're following the podcast and you're subscribed. All right. Next, next, even though we just spent an entire episode talking about, you know, the, the craziness of social media, make sure you share the episodes. All right. Let's use social media for good. You see, you see how misinformation spreads and all that. Well, what if you shared a podcast where we talk to people about these topics and we can educate more people about it. That'd be cool. And it helps out the podcast when you share the episodes. So any episode that you like, whether it's this one with Charles or any of the others, make sure you share about on social media. And the last thing that's really helpful is if you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. And the main reason is all this stuff really helps with the algorithms. Charles and I talked a lot about how algorithms work. And this is one of those things, all right? So we can amplify, you know, uh, different different pieces of content that are trying to educate people and, you know, not just have sensationalized topics and all that. All right. But some other ways that you can support the podcast uh, down in the description, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published some books on mental health, addiction recovery, my experience being canceled on YouTube. Uh, you can also become a patron and there's an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. So on the topic of social media, they talk about how it's ruining our mental health. Well, therapy is helpful. And I actually started personally using BetterHelp online therapy when I was being canceled. And that's one of the reasons I vouch for their service. So I, I really, really love their service and it's affordable. You can work with a licensed therapist who is specialized in, you know, what you need, whether it's depression, trauma, anxiety, whatever it is. So if, if you want some affordable online therapy, check out that affiliate link for better help. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Charles for coming on and thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast at the time of recording this, we're only like a hundred listens away from 10,000 downloads. So that is fantastic. I appreciate you all. And a lot of you are out there sharing these episodes. So I appreciate you too. All right. So have a great rest of your day and I will see you tomorrow with a new episode with another author. I'll talk to you then.